Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with Phil Elliott, Washington correspondent for Time and author of The D.C. Brief, a weekday newsletter produced by Time. Phil helps us unravel the twisted mess that is Washington politics, and he gives us clear, nonpartisan analysis from the perspective of a veteran reporter. Phil, uh, it's the end of the year. Uh, The government just avoided uh, another shutdown, at least temporarily. Uh, Can we expect anything to go on in Washington between now and January 1? Yeah, it's actually going to be a pretty busy time here in Washington. Uh, Despite having a very, you know, temporary kick the can down the road government funding, the government still hits its borrowing max uh, on the 15th of December. So if Congress can't approve a, a what it's what we call it the debt ceiling, basically can we move the credit, credit card limit up uh, north to cover spending we've already done, the government will default. And that would be an incredibly disastrous, calamitous moment, not just for the U.S. economy, but for the global economy. It would basically be the, the United States saying, thank you, world. You've let us borrow this money. We've exhausted all of our borrowing power, and we've spent a bunch of money, and we need more money to cover it. But yeah, we can't agree to do that. Everyone in Washington agrees it would be very bad to happen. But as of our recording, a week away from this, Republicans are saying, okay, Democrats, you're in control. You have to get all the votes. The problem there is Democrats have a 50-50 majority with Vice President Harris breaking the tie in the Senate. To increase it, they need 10 Republican votes to go along with it. And it's going to be this ridiculous game of chicken between Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer and the White House, whether they can come up with um, an agreement to avoid a global economic meltdown for the holidays. It's, it's an only in Washington moment that everyone is looking at each other in disbelief that we're at this point, but we're here again. And it's, like I said, it, it's a game of chicken between uh, the two parties about what can be done. It's, it's truly juvenile, but it's a calibration, whether you're Leader Schumer or Leader McConnell, about who gets the blame. Democrats have unified control over Washington. They have the House, they have the Senate by very, the most impossibly narrow majority. 
and they have the White House. So this is Democrats' problem if you're the if you're Republicans telling the story. You're saying Democrats have control, Democrats are at the wheel, and Democrats are the ones who can't get this across the finish line. And if you're a Democrat trying to explain the filibuster and why you're preserving the filibuster, Democrats could unilaterally destroy the filibuster and just say, we're gonna do, we're gonna run this country with 50 votes, use the same threshold that we use for nominees for the bench, use the basic, you know, just major simple majority rule. Instead Democrats, of 60 votes to avoid the filibuster. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, the filibuster isn't really a filibuster anymore. It's a threat of a filibuster. And I mean, it's it's very rare that anyone actually forces someone to physically filibuster something, that it's the threat of it alone shuts down debate and people move on. And I mean, the filibuster is basically, in, a, in its pure sense, the filibuster is 60 senators saying, we're done with the debate, let's have a vote. Um, and that is the threshold that they have to get past. Um, and But there are just a lot of cranky um, Republicans who are willing to go along with this and say, nope, we're going we're gonna to force this into a default. Joe Biden will be at the wheel. It'll be Democrats' fault, and voters will punish them heading into midterms next year. Midterms, I must note, are already expected to be very bad for Democrats. The history is just not on the side of the party that holds the White House. And I mean, I've, I've been around enough to know that pretty much the Wednesday after a president's first midterms, he has to come out, hang his head, say they got, in Barack Obama's term, it was a shellacking. Um, you, they got walloped. I mean, it's just every president goes out there, takes their lumps. And this has been the case since every president since World War II, except George W. Bush, who still had the post 9-11 glow on him when he faced voters in 02. But he was the exception to this. And, you know, you're looking at a bunch of, you know, between Democrats retiring um, and the Republican state legislatures redrawing maps in really funky ways to disadvantage them. Um, it, it's the, the, I mean, right now, Speaker Pelosi um, can afford to lose uh, three votes on any given vote and still get things across the finish line. That, that majority is expected um, to be much smaller, if not evaporate, um, by this time next year. You wrote in your uh, DC brief uh, just a few days ago about why Joe Biden needs to worry about yams uh, <laughs> at, at Thanksgiving. Uh, talk about the economy. You know, there have been some good things about the economy, but they don't seem to be getting across to Joe and Sally Average American. Is it because of terrible democratic messaging or what's the disconnect? Part of it is democratic messaging. And, you know, Biden's outside allies have been really sounding the alarm on this, doing focus groups in must win swing states for his reelection. Um, and Pennsylvania won, right? Pennsylvania is the one I, I focused on yeah. uh, recently in, in the D.C. brief. But they're doing the same sort of research in places like Ohio. Um, Missouri is one they're looking at with caution. Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, uh, Arizona, unexpectedly, is somewhere that, that they're um, having to spend money to better understand the electorate. And part of it is the economy is doing well. My, I mean, 
my 401k thanks this economy very helpfully uh, for its success, but I, I recognize my position of privilege that I have that ability. Most, most individuals going paycheck to paycheck aren't seeing the gains. And there are a couple reasons for this. One is unemployment is low. There, there are more jobs than there are job seekers right now. And that is forcing um, inflation up um, along with a, uh, you know, a bottleneck of goods and services. Um, there's, I mean, we haven't seen, I mean, I don't know of anyone who wanted a turkey at Thanksgiving who couldn't get one uh, because they weren't on the shelves. But there is um, the sense, um, similar to there is this malaise around Jimmy Carter around this time in his term, um, that the economy is doing well, but not as well for everyone. Also, you can't underestimate Republicans. You can't write off Republicans' legitimate concerns that all of this, a lot of spending here in the last two years, uh, emergency spending to confront the uh, COVID crisis, has injected a lot of cash into the economy. That the, you know, between the child, uh, the child payments, the stimulus checks, uh, a lot of uh, rent forgiveness, just just a lot of social spending already has has put more money in the pockets of people, and that has sent prices going northward. Um, so the a buck truly is not going as far as it used to. Um, Biden's it, Biden the Biden's team very much recognizes it. You saw that when they started opening up the strategic petroleum reserves um, to try to get the price of gas down. Uh, and th that's a, that, is, that was a choice. Um, typically, the <laughs> reserves are reserved for you know, times of war or OPEC blockages, um, not just you know, people want to go see grandma and kind of want more gas um, at a cheaper rate. But it, it's, he recognizes that this, is, this could be a problem going into not just the midterms, but his own reelection if he seeks a second term, as he has said he will. Although, judging from some of the chatter here in D.C., you would think the Kamala Harris-Pete Buttigieg primary is already underway in Iowa. It's, that, that's, that's its own sideshow that we can talk about. Um, but it is a, the, the economy is, has always been, um, in recent years, the most important issue in an election. Um, and we saw just a couple of weeks ago in the off-year governor's race in Virginia, um, how the economy and perception of it played out um, and gave Glenn Youngkin um, the keys to the governor's mansion, uh, put Republicans back there for the first time um, in, in three terms. So recently I uh, did a car trip between Ohio and Massachusetts and crossed the state of Pennsylvania, and I was amazed at seeing all of the uh, indicia of Trump support uh, through, especially through rural uh, Pennsylvania. I saw in the Hill today that if there was an election today, Trump would defeat Biden. Is, is that sending off any shockwaves that are in, in Washington? Are they looking out here to the hinterlands? No, I mean, they recognize that the president has more than a political figure. He has become a cultural figure. He, is, he, is, he came into politics a celebrity. He left politics an even bigger celebrity. 
that this is part of, you know, for some Republicans, this is now part of their identity. It's the, the same people who, in, in some parts of this country, still flag the Confederate flag um, because that is, it's telling the man that you, you can't control me. You, you, we are not going to be told what to do. We have freedom. And their historical understanding of the symbol of the Confederacy is garbage at best and perverted at worst. But it is a, a way to manifest their, their re, rebel is the wrong word um, or imprecise word. But it's their, you know, the, the screw you. It's the same people who, you know, go around wearing uh, Let's Go Brandon t-shirts um, as, as a replacement for a vulgar political chant. It is the you don't, you don't, you can't tell me what to do type people. It's that has become part of that. And having Trump is somewhat counter, it, it's, it's counter to what is po- expected in polite company. And that's part of the draw to it. The other thing to remember is Republicans recognize, elected Republicans here in DC, for the most part, recognize they can't survive if Trump comes after them. Trump is the most powerful voice in the Republican Party at this moment. He left Washington with more power than he had, uh, than he wielded as president. And part of that is he now, he doesn't have the confines of the office. He has nothing to do but troll people. And in that, there's a lot of power in him, his ability to summon people in a way that, you know, Paul Ryan never had, Mitt Romney never had, George W. Bush by the end of his administration, didn't have. I mean, he didn't He didn't even go to the convention in 2008. He instead did a foreign trip to Africa because his brand was so toxic um, to that, to, to his own party that had elected his family three times to the White House, three times to the Oval Office, you know, five times if you include uh, HW's two terms as Reagan's vice president. I mean, there's, like, when the political royalty of the Bush family goes toxic, it, it we didn't see that with Trump. Trump is Trump is still on top of the Republican Party. He has more money than I would say he knows how to spend, but he will find a way to spend it, I'm sure. And um, starts with an overwhelming advantage um, because remember, throughout his four years, his deputies, a few of them in particular, went about very strategically and surgically installing loyalists. As the head of state parties, Jane Timken in Ohio, for instance, was a Trump loyalist, and she made sure that this, you know, the Republican Party of the state of Ohio was very much a pro-Trump wing. And if and anyone who dared stray from that found themselves standing on the outside pretty quickly. So I, I do think we in Washington are looking at Trump as he is the he's the prohibitive favorite. Uh, to be the party nominee in 2024, if he seeks it, he may. You know, he all signs point to he is, but they have to if he's to continue having this sway over the party. If he says, "Well, maybe not," that opens the door for people to make louder visits to early states. I'm thinking about Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, um, who effectively would be shut out of the primary process if Trump. Uh, were to run because they would have to run as an anti-Trump candidate who served in his administration. And that's a really tricky thing well, to try to pull off. One name, though, that you didn't mention is DeSantis. 
and mm-hmm. the, the at least apparent growing gulf between Trump and DeSantis. Yes, DeSantis is a he, you, you underestimate DeSantis at your own peril. That this is a guy, it's easy to write off as oh, this is this is mini Trump. He is all you know. He's he's all insult and bravado. But there's a strategy behind what he's doing. He's embracing parts of Trump and he's setting aside other parts that he and, you know, Trump was many things good at government was not one of them. DeSantis actually understands how government works and he is using every part of his power as governor of Florida to lay a record on which he could run. It's very Rick Perry, very George W. Bush in its uh, strategery to borrow uh, Bushism. that they're 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 building the narrative. I mean, you you look at some of the what the stuff they're doing with in in, in from his office and in the legislature, a, a compliant legislature. I really ought to note, right. um, but they're helping him build basically made for made for Des Moines media market television ads. Um, I mean, DeSantis is doing this really smartly, and you have to recognize that there there will there may come a point where he he is given the opportunity and takes it to stab uh, Donald Trump in the back. Well, Trump's pushing back or or, or moving himself away from DeSantis, uh, to me, tells me that DeSantis has more power than than most people give him credit for. Right. And, and, you know, Trump Trump doesn't waste his time with people he thinks are not threats. I mean, he, he, he likes to needle um, folks like he likes to needle folks just because he's sure. a mean, he's a mean girl like that. But when he strategically makes choices, um, it's, he never punches, he never, he never punches laterally. He, he punches down to be a bully and he punches up when he thinks someone, um, it, it has taken the upper hand. I mean, so tell me what Georgia, the role Georgia plays in all of this. Uh, Trump came out this week and, and endorsed Purdue in the, in the Republican primary against sitting Governor Kemp. Kemp. Uh, then we have Stacey Abrams announcing this week. Talk about both the primary and the general there, and that's coming up in 2022. What impact will that have? Uh, on the rest of the races, well, you're you're going to look at. I mean, the, I could very easily see that being a billion dollar race, the governor's race alone, because um, you're going to have every outside group using it. The primary is a proxy on the strength of Trump. That can Trump exact revenge against Brian Kemp for not setting aside the results of the 2020 election? Which you know, Kemp has been very clear. He voted for Trump. He wanted Trump to be in office, but you know. Trump lost Georgia. Like there, there's just no denying that. I mean, he, it was narrow, and it was embarrassing to anyone wearing a red jersey. Uh, I mean, this is Georgia, a state that last voted for a Democratic presidential candidate with Bill Clinton. Um, but it is it is really shaping up in the primary to be a proxy of Trumpism in the Republican Party, and the durability of the New South. Uh, for the Democrats in the general, Stacey Abrams is a she. She is a I won't say once a generation talent because there are a, there are a couple up that there are a couple in in her cohort that are just damn impressive. 
Um, but she's really good at what she does. Like the technical aspects of campaign, like she comes at it like it's an operative, not as a candidate herself. And, and, in that, raising, and raising money. She's yes. superb at that. Yes. And she really, she lost her own race for governor, you know, pretty, I mean, she lost her race. End of story. She, she has never conceded, but with the votes that were counted, she lost. We can, we can argue voter suppression and all of that, but ultimately you have to win with the votes in the, in, in the ballot box. You just, I mean, that's just, sorry. That's, that's, them's the rules. Um, so she is, she is going to be very well-funded. Um, Republicans are probably going to be just as well-funded and they're going to dump a ton of money in that state. Also, you can't underestimate the power of the Senate race there that, you know, Georgia elect, Georgia sent two Democrats, um, to Washington, um, in that special election just in January. But one of them was just for the balance of an unfilled term that, you know, the Reverend Senator Warnock, uh, has to win now, uh, a full term on his own. And that's going to be tough. So your Democrats are going to have to, you know, defend that seat plus try to flip the governor's race um, in, a, in, a, you know, in a state that doesn't really have a political infrastructure. Stacey Abrams built one and has worked with her team, um, including a couple Ohioans um, uh, who used to work at the state party, uh, state Democratic Party, uh, to build the organization and scale it and keep it. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be expensive. And, you know, it's just going to be mean. Um, it's, you know, it, it's going to be every worst impulse in politics. You know, they're, 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 when there are tough races, even in Michigan, in Minnesota, even in Ohio, they're tough, but they're civil. The South plays dirty. And that's, <laughs> I, it's why I love the South. The South Carolina primary is my favorite week every four years, um, just because there is no sense of decency. You can... You can say and do anything, and it's still and as long as you say "bless his heart" at the end of the sentence, you can <laughs> right. get away with it. Right, right, right. Uh, Georgia, Georgia is going to be that mean as well. But, but will the Republican primary between Purdue and Kemp will that leave lasting scars? So, let's say Kemp would happen to win, uh, all the Trump people will sit out the general. That is what Democrats are hoping. And in that, I would not be surprised to see Democrats spending money trying to prop up, you know, one candidate or the other. Um, we've seen this in the past. Claire McCaskill famously did it in her last successful Senate race, basically paying the advertising for the Republicans she thought she could beat. Um, you could very easily see some clever Democrats or, you know, just like the Lincoln Project on the Republican side try to have some shenanigans and create some bad blood between those two sides because ultimately what killed what what caused you know senate republicans the two seats in georgia wasn't entirely that they had bad candidates although both of kelly Loff they they had their problems <laughs> Let, let's not pretend they were perfect candidates but trump had spent weeks telling his supporters that you can't trust the results in Georgia. Elections are jokes in, in Georgia. The results are garbage. And then he wondered why 
Republicans listened, believing you can't trust votes, and none of them voted in the runoff. So there, there is that risk, and that's why you know, you know, Mitch McConnell is keeping really, really close tabs on that state because it could end up. I mean, it could end up costing them hundreds of millions of dollars um, to try there, and it, it's. I mean, it, Georgia doesn't have a huge political media infrastructure, but it's still Atlanta television that you're going to have to buy. And Atlanta's Atlanta's not a cheap market. So, I mean, you're, you're talking Philadelphia-level prices at this point. Let me circle back to Congress uh, for a couple of minutes. And and I've got two questions, and I'm, I'm not sure they're interrelated, but they may be. You know, you, you did a, a piece, again, for the D.C. Brief on uh, Lauren Boebert's uh, Islamophobic statements and and the Democrats' uh, response. This seems to me, uh, although the, the statements were atrocious, this seems to me a, a sideshow. And we keep covering the sideshow. Uh, when do we stop covering the sideshow? When do we stop giving credibility to these insane kind of accusations? Well, I mean, I struggle with this, to be honest. Um, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they are fringe elements, but they speak to an, where the Republican Party is going or has gone and might be going in a more mainstream way. That these these voices are saying things that are outlandish and outrageous, and they're doing it as performance art. We have to just be upfront about what this is. They're doing it to get a reaction. Sure. And to get press. Correct. But, you know, it would be a lot easier for me to ignore this as fringe and treated as, you know, the garbage that should be thrown out 30 seconds after I open it, it's, you know, styrofoam container, if it weren't tolerated or tacitly approved of by the party's leadership, that I, I, you and I both recognize that it is dangerous and it's toxic, but until the people who actually have power will stand up and say the same thing it it's it's it stands in as part of the mainstream of contemporary republican thought it is if if not embraced it's tolerated and it it has been given permission and you know maybe this isn't as fringe as we thought it's still garbage and bigoted but maybe it's not as fringe as we thought and you ignore it at your own peril because at one point, you know, you go from like I'll admit I refused to cover Donald Trump in 2015 because um, I thought I had the same thinking that this was a fringe candidate who wasn't going anywhere, and I'm not giving oxygen to this guy until he started leading the polls. Until he started, so I mean, I didn't attend my first Trump rally until Labor Day weekend of 2015, wow. um, months after he had, you know, been on the scene. I just, I just didn't, I didn't. I, I missed it. And I think if we treat the L- Lauren Boebert, the Matt Gates, you know, 
the Paul Gosars of the world as fringe and not worthy of coverage, you wake up one day and they're the nominee. And you have to ask yourself how. And you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, miss it completely, um, the rise of it. And you, you have to try to understand where they're coming from because it's easy to cast them aside and say, this is all garbage and nothing they say has credibility. But just today, I, I went to a, Mar I, I watched a Marjorie Taylor Greene press conference where she actually, she went to the DC jail, which is a notoriously bad abuser bad, of yeah. civil rights. The, the Justice Department under, um, Biden has now stepped in and said, hey, you, you guys, this is just terrible. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of a, a handful of members of Congress who are elevating a legitimate, you know, embarrassment to America's uh, judicial system and elevating it in, in, a, in a, a meaningful way. Um, and she just, she's out with a report today that I'm going to write on. Um, and she all but acknowledged this uh, when she met with reporters. Um, She's, she she had a tacit, I know what you think of me, and I know what you've all written about me, but set aside that and actually just focus on the substance of what I'm reporting back from inside the D.C. jail, something that truly no other member of Congress has done. So you, 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 you can't marginalize someone for irresponsible rhetoric and hope that, you know, they go away or bleed or think that they have nothing to offer to the public's uh, uh, arena. Because, you know, what they say may be disgraceful, but, you know, sometimes it might not, sometimes some of the other comments might not be wrong. Well, the second part of my question is, displays my, my bias against Congress right at the moment as being <laughs> totally ineffectual. So I, I'll say that up front. The the January sixth uh, committee investigation uh, commission, I see Mark Meadows has changed his position uh, as of today. Uh, but the, the whole thing seems to be going nowhere fast, and uh, it's lost the momentum. It's lost any sense of timing. Nobody gives a damn at this point. I wish. I could correct you on that um, because we're coming up on the one year anniversary of it. And um, it truly we don't, we don't have a whole lot yet. Um, the, the thinking is they need to get it done on the soon side. So we're, the unofficial timeline in all of our heads is uh, the first quarter of next year that, you know, by April one, we need to have, some sense of what there is, if there is any. Um, there's been a lot of foot dragging, a lot of mixed messages of cooperation, and a lot of incomplete information at that. Part of the problem is they're trying to investigate something while there are hundreds of criminal cases pending, and that you know, even some of the some of it, truly some of the defendants haven't had access to the government files yet. Like it, it'd be really difficult for someone to turn information over to Congress before they turn it over to the person sitting in a jail waiting trial for, you know, these, these alleged crimes. It, it, this thing from the beginning has been problematic that, you know, Republicans refused to cooperate with it. They, they filibustered it in the Senate. 
They refuse to send anyone serious um, to the House. They, they, they wanted to do a special like 9-11 style commission. That got shut down. Then the select committee got shut. I mean, it's just been bad. Republicans end up sending basically one, January 6th truthers as their nominees. And Pelosi just said, no, we're not doing this and rejected them. Um, so in turn, they have now two, um, you know, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, true, true, truly conservative individuals who just don't buy Trumpism um, participating. So yeah, it's bipartisan, but it's not really. And then just the, unlike impeachment, where there was a clear case they were building methodically and honestly, very brilliantly, we're not seeing that here, that there's been spurts of activity and some really nice um, narrative that has been built um, on, on certain days, but it's been nowhere near the sensation that some Democrats had hoped. Um, part of that, some of that is a question of leadership. Um, some of it is a question of cooperation. Some of it is, you know, you've got a lot, you've got local prosecutors saying, let me do my job first. And, you know, y'all can deal with this later, you know, and it's, it's, it's not good. Add to, add, add to that the layer of the Capitol Police, which were completely unprepared or ill-informed or asleep at the wheel um, or complicit, we don't know, um, with this. And their reforms really have been slow to kick in. Um, and it's, I mean, you, you, visitors still are not at the Capitol. Um, we can still get in as reporters. But I mean, at, in a sign of just how nervous everyone still is you have to go through a metal detector to get into the building and then to get into go into the speaker's lobby outside the floor of the house there's another metal detector so i mean there's just like you have to go through two layers of security to get into the speaker's lobby which is just okay you got into the building without with as a security threat so we're going to do a second i mean it's just bananas to me um, how, how scary some parts of this is. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Down here in the Midwest, there I think there are two perceptions. One, that Congress and the Democrats running this investigation are weak and feckless. And two, that there is no accountability. Every time some Republican like Steve Bannon or or Flynn or whatever gets called on the carpet, they skate and there is no one being held accountable. That perception is not one that is fanciful. There is entire. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. That's Washington speak. What do you mean by that? <laughs> that's that's not a, That's not an un, an unreasonable perception to have. It is. It's maddening to us as well who cover it. Um, it's like this. You can do what? You can just choose not to show up to testify to Congress. You can invoke executive privilege when you weren't even in the administration on the day it happened. Like it's it's just this. It, it's a lot of novel trying to twist things and hope the public just you know pox on both their houses. I mean, Tom, Tom, you're a judge. I mean, you would have never put up with this. No, no, no. <laughs> there has to be a time for accountability, either finding of not guilty or guilty. But there has to be a time of accountability. Yeah, apparently not here, or at least not now. It is, it's, I mean, Congress is, because, because the committee has such, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have the, um, the stamp of bipartisanship that like the 9-11 commission had. It's, it's, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, the 9-11 commission worked because everyone involved from the top with George W. Bush down said cooperate with this commission. Although it must be noted, Bush didn't testify under oath, neither did Cheney. They both testified in private session. The caveat matters, but just their 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 top officials cooperated. They had the access to the documents they want they needed. The commission wasn't perfect, but the 9-11 commission gave us a definitive account of what happened. And you know And the system wasn't broken. The system wasn't broken. People may have skated uh, towards the line occasionally, but the system worked. Yeah. Here the system's not working. And everyone involved can see it, and no one knows how to to regain it. I mean, trust in institutions continues its skid down. Congress has ridiculously low job approval rating, and no one's really willing to step in. Um, like half of this country, the Republican Party, which is, you know, almost just under half of Congress has stood in arm in arm with two exceptions and said, we're good. We don't need to know what happened, which is they don't want to know because they don't they know where this is going to point and it's going to point to the most powerful person in their party. And this is just, you know, people were trying to kill the vice president about Mike Pence there. They had a noose for him. People had, you know, zip ties to t- to kidnap members of Congress. Members of Congress were hiding under their desks, barricaded in their offices. Blood was smeared on the uh, the busts outside the Senate chamber. 
Like it was a terrifying scene. It, it, tear gas was fired in the rotunda. And half of the p- political officials in the Congress are saying, nope, we're good. Which just tells you everything you need to know about why you can't ignore what President Trump is doing at Mar-a-Lago. So then we add to this, um, this, uh, to me, hackneyed, outmoded phrase that we keep hearing from Biden and some of his allies, which is bipartisanship, bipartisanship. Bipartisanship doesn't exist and won't for the foreseeable future, probably for my lifetime. It will not exist. So why do they keep going with this charade? Well, <laughs> if you talk to any progressive on the Hill, they would, they would have less um, diplomatic uh, descriptions of that than you do. Um, there really is a frustration. Um, among progressives here in Washington, that Biden is just trying to govern in a different era, from a different era. That bipartisanship, ha- there is no incentive to be bipartisan here right now. None. That there is every incentive to be partisan and to be a partisan hack at that. You don't need, I mean, there's one thing to be, like, I, I remember, you know, Paul Ryan was as partisan as they came, but he was doing it from a place of, intellectual honesty he didn't always get the numbers right and some of his economic ideas you know there's a reason he never got into the phd program at the university of chicago but he he at least was trying to you know say here's here's my intellectual framework here is what i have here's what i need here's what i believe here's how we might be able to work together that doesn't exist right now and he was an institutionalist which doesn't exist anymore Right. I mean, even, I mean, I, I can't help but think about Elise Stefanik, uh, a, at one point the youngest member of Congress. She's a contemporary of mine, um, which makes me feel old that there are members of Congress <laughs> who are my age or younger. But uh, she represents a conservative state district upstate. I mean, I, I, I met her when she was Carl Rove's assistant in the Bush White House. She ran debate prep for Paul Ryan during the campaign. She, she was a staffer. And she, you would think that she, of all people, gets what an institutionalist is, a Harvard-educated policy wonk. She was out there leading Trump's legal defense uh, efforts. She's not, I mean, just trying to be as MAGA as possible, trying to ingratiate herself with the force that is Trump. I mean, West Point is in her congressional district. So when, when Trump signed the defense authorization bill that was named for John McCain and refused to use John McCain's name, Neither did Elise Stefanik. She just, she just kind of, in her remarks, she just pretended it wasn't John McCain's name on the bill that they were signing. I mean, it was, it, it is, it is staggering that institutionalists like that can bend themselves uh, away from their instinct, their DNA, how they were raised in the political system, to, uh, you know, kowtow to Donald Trump, and that, that is that is where we are. And it, as, as long as he has this sort of power, this is this is the state of American politics. Moving over to the Senate, which I don't give that high of marks either. Uh, in fact, maybe maybe less marks or, or worse marks, I should say. Uh, 
again, the filibuster in the Senate comes down to the Democrats not being able to get rid of it because of Senator Manchin from my neighboring state of West Virginia and the senator from Arizona. Now, if that's in fact true, then the White House looks exceptionally weak by not being able to force those people to the vote against the filibuster. It's easy to blame Manchin and Cinema for this. They, they, they are responsible for the Build Back Better's hiccups 100%. The filibuster gets a little more complicated. That, you know, they're willing to be the evil face of the filibuster and the public defenders of it. Privately, I could see eight or 12 other Democrats also saying, hold up. We, we, we hate the filibuster now, but that map come 2022 does not look good for Democrats. That there is a very real chance, less than the House, but there's still a real chance that Democrats are in the minority come 2023. Do they want to give Mitch McConnell the ability to legislate with just 50 votes, with 51 votes? That is, a lot of them are playing the long game here. You still have the presidential veto. You do, but they're, they're okay, 2025, when President Trump is in there, and you, you want to see, and you know, maybe leader, maybe Speaker McCarthy, maybe Speaker Scalise, you know, that whole Republican leadership fight is going right. to be epic. Um, you know, Speaker Madison Cawthorn, Speaker Marjorie Taylor Greene, who knows? Um, but you're, do you want to have a world in which 51 votes can pass a bill to overturn Roe v. Wade? That you can codify any, uh, another, you know, change the law and make a Burgerfell irrelevant when it comes to the rights of same sex couples to marry? That, you know, the Senate is, slow and deliberate for a reason. And sometimes that's deeply frustrating as, you know, especially if you're Joe Biden seeing your legislative agenda basically flame out in under 12 months. But it is there the filibuster is a valued part of Washington. And you can but see people out here, Phil, just want results and they're seeing no results. Yeah, the frustration is 100% understandable. And you talk to lawmakers and it's like, okay, why aren't you doing this? And they're like, do you want to see what happens when you take away that one last check? Because they don't. That this, this is, you know, inaction right now might look a whole lot better to progressives than an agenda that can pass the Senate with 51 votes, rolling back everything from the EPA to reproductive rights to ditching Obamacare, like there, there's there's a lot that can be done um, with just 51 votes. 60 votes, a little tougher. Moving to the executive branch and moving to the White House, um, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> be specific uh, here. <laughs> I mean, he, 
her office seems to be in total disarray. And to me, it's my opinion, she has shown herself to be an ineffectual vice president. That perception is widely shared around Washington. I must say, though, we had a bit of a break, but I love getting staff intrigue and staff just taking shots at the principal day in and day out. It's like I'm covering the Trump administration all over again. <laughs> okay. And as a reporter, you, lo- you, 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 you like the gossip. There, there's like, who did what? Wait, she wore what? She, she actually went, to, not the vice president, but staffers. They showed up wearing what to that event? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me look on social. Yep, there's that on social media. That's that's out there, unironically. Um, it's, you know, there are a number, there, it's telling how few people from her failed presidential campaign opted to go work in her orbit again. And that was partly by, you know, the Biden team's design because they were reluctant to let the Harris people in the door. And then how few of them wanted to come in and actually work for Harris again. But there, you know, no one has a, the best day on the Harris campaign was the day they ended it. And that is the universally shared belief among the Harris alumni. This was a campaign that did not make it even to the Iowa caucuses. It didn't make it to the first poll. It was that it imploded. It had a high watermark when we were, we were in Miami and Harris had the, that little girl was me moment to then vice president Biden. And that was the, that was the biggest success they had politically. I mean, it is no joke that everyone speaks with nostalgia about the night they dropped out and Harris showed up at campaign headquarters in Baltimore and was dancing with the staff trying to buck them up. But that was one time that she showed, you know, what that was the time she showed what she could have been, but it was too late at that point. Now she's she her office has just taken on this, you know, almost I hate to use it veep like quality of it. Yeah, it's it's like Selena Meyer is in there and just trying to be relevant and struggling every day. I mean, you, you hear stories about her frustration with the staff, but she shows up for briefings having not read any of the material. Um, She's constantly wanting to be a piece of everything, but have responsibility for none of it. She's at every single event that Biden has, um, standing just out out of frame or often in frame to show she's at uh, his right hand and learning on the job for a job that she wants um, in four or eight years. But it's you have to do the work. You have to put points on the board, and whether it's it's part of it is her, part of it is her family. Um, she keeps her own counsel, and her sister remains a very senior advisor, a very trusted voice. And part of part of it is the staff. She's just not being served by the staff that is just sniping with each other. Everyone thinks they're Josh Lyman from The West Wing. And no one, <laughs> no, and it's it's what it is. I mean, these yeah. a lot of these people are very good, but they might they a lot of them are just in the wrong role. Um, technic, I mean, they're technically competent, 
they have the right resumes, but maybe not for the job they have. And, and t- you know, she was reluctant to do a staff shakeup, and then she did some mini shakeups, and then there are some exits, and then there are some cycling out. I mean, you do. I mean, to put it to put it in context, I mean, her chief of staff was Bill Clinton's chief of staff. She had she she poached Bill Clinton's chief of staff to run the office of the vice president, but ultimately the OVP reflects the the priorities of the VP, and you know if the VP is making bad choices and not being protected from them by the people around her, that's ultimately on her. I mean we can we can write off and dismiss this as trivia, but you know. She couldn't have bought the Le Creuset pot at the Williams Sonoma in Arlington. She had to buy the expensive <laughs> pot, the cast iron pot in Paris. I mean, it, it just it, it's, this was needless. I mean, it's it's not like the stuff doesn't exist. I mean, I bought all my Le Creuset on the web. Like it's just like <laughs> I admit, I like nice. I, <laughs> I'm a Marseille nice color. I like I I, like my kitchen is all Marseille Le Creuset. It's Marseille blue. It's you know. Beautiful. It all matches. But it's I bought it all on LaCruze.com. It had free shipping. Like there's just <laughs> for for the entire week-long trip of Harris to Paris to be overrun by a pot, that's just that's just you know someone someone needs to, you know, everyone needed to have just taken a beat and said, We'll have it shipped, ma'am. We'll have a staffer come back and pick it up. You don't you like you don't you didn't need to do that. So contrast that to a former mayor and now secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg. He yeah. seems to be keeping his head down, um, making appropriate decisions, appropriate statements, but being low key. If I got that right? That is the perception. I mean, Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete. I, it's, you, you go through years of calling someone Mayor Pete. Now, oh, no. it's, now it's Secretary <laughs> Pete, and that that's, right. doesn't quite have the same. But uh, no. Secretary Buttigieg um, has really embraced his what sh- what typically transportation is a low key backwater agency. Right. It's typically where you put the minority party as a token. Like Ray LaHood was Obama's transportation secretary. He was a Republican congressman. And they worry about train schedules, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like when when there's a plane crash, NTSB goes and takes takes a look at it. You find the black box. Right. Now he has elevated it by virtue of Biden's, you know, infrastructure agenda. And he's he's a competent communicator. You never have to worry about him going off script. He is he has his line, he knows what he's gonna say, he knows the policy, he does the homework. And he's not going to cause drama. That said, you can see some of the... It doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand where the tension between Harris and Buttigieg has been flaring up. I mean, it was no accident that when Pete and Chastin Buttigieg adopted two kids and and Secretary Pete took paternal leave for, you know, he, he used his paternal leave, paternity leave. It is in, he is a federal employee. He is entitled to these benefits. Um, to, 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 um, adjust, to spend time with his new family. It seemed like everyone all of a sudden needed to know that 
you know, Secretary Pete's not on the job. He's not working. He's taking paternity leave. And for a couple days there, the White House didn't have his back. And everyone was kind of shaken by that because, wait, they're not defending him? Is he on his way out? Did Vice President Harris finally land a knife? It wasn't until it started getting personal where what do dads need paternity leave for? He didn't give birth. And then it just took on a, well, and then it took on an, anti, uh, it, frankly, a homophobic turn in right. some corners. That's when the White House stepped in and Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, with a beautifully timed rejoinder to a question about what, why Mayor, Secretary Pete wasn't on the job. She just flat out said, oh, really? I was on a call with him this morning. He was on the call. You want to tell me he wasn't working? I was on the call with him. Um, and that is where Jen, a mother of two, has just really proven truly devastating at that podium when it comes to, to the frankly sexist uh, questions that sometimes uh, get asked of her. And she can just come back and say, you know, as a mother, let me tell you a few things. You might not know this. You mostly male press corps at the White House. Let me, <laughs> let me fill you in on a few things. Let me take you to school. You know, that's where Jen goes. Before we wrap on this, though, I do. I would be remiss if I didn't make a note that the that gender does play a role in how we're discussing the, you know, the Buddha Judge Harris situation in a big way. That you know, a lot of the questions about the commentary about Harris and her management style can't be separated from the fact that her is the pronoun being used to describe it. That tough, you only ever hear stories in Washington about bad bosses when they happen to be women. Got it. And that is just a, that is, we have to acknowledge, we have to be honest about it. That, you know, there, there are some terrible human beings who are members of Congress, but we only ever heard about Amy Klobuchar forcing a Stafford or Stafford eat a salad with a fork. Like, we never hear about the, you know, male members of Congress who are very proficient with throwing phones in people's faces. It's just those, those things are accepted, but when a woman is tough, uh, we, we all seem to know all of, all of it really quickly um, and not, um, and we, we shouldn't ignore that that is, that is what's happening. We, we, we let it go uh, unchallenged for so long during the Clinton campaign and just, you know, everything about Hillary had to do with she was a tough woman and not, you know, she actually had a policy agenda that got set aside as people were worrying about hat bands. Phil, I want to remind people that you are the Washington correspondent for time. You are the primary author uh, of the D.C. Brief. Uh, which is delivered five days a week to my email account. How do people sign up for getting your insights? It is a free newsletter we publish. You can sign up at time.com slash the DC brief. Um, and we try to have original insight analysis, reporting interviews um, that takes a step back and really explains what is happening in Washington and why it matters that this is, it's easy to, you know, chase this piece of gossip or that, you know, opposition research, 
But, you know, trying to build on the DC Bureau's deep reservoir of reporting, my, you know, longer than I want to admit, time here in Washington, yeah. um, covering uh, the, the, the city, the capital as a place of ideas and culture and traditions and um, decoding it. And trying. our tagline is make sense of what matters. And we try to only focus on things that matter. And sometimes they seem trivial, but I, I try to explain why even the trivial matters and you shouldn't, sometimes the trivial matters and you ignore it. Um, if ignoring it might set you back for future developments and you'll, you, you know, when you end up with speaker Marjorie Taylor Greene, it might be worth understanding how she got there. Well, kudos to you because one of the things that I like about it is its breadth of topics. Uh, you don't just stay on one thing forever. You you get economy one day, uh, Senate intrigue or House intrigue the next. It, it really covers the waterfront and, and gives you a, a great picture of what's going on in Washington. You read it five days a week and, and you come away knowing what's happening. Thank you so much, Tom. That 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 means a lot. I I, I try to have fun with it and try to keep, sometimes zag when it's someone else is zigging, uh, just to just to keep it fresh. One last thing, and I always give you this opportunity. Come January one, come the first of the year. What's the one thing that we ought to look out for? Starting January one, I would say the White House will be reset at that point to focus with a laser on the midterms that really that becomes crunch time that it's time for the white house to start putting up tangible victories and that doesn't necessarily mean victories in congress but it's you know bridge groundbreakings water system repairs fluoride treatment plant ribbon cuttings it's going to be starting to roll out the implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure bill and it's going to give the Biden team an awful lot of opportunities to show up at these events with Republicans. Remember, this excuse me, this was a bipartisan infrastructure bill. This is the stuff that is really popular. It is the tunnels, the bridges, the airport terminals, it is the water pipe replacements, it is the nitty-gritty of government that is decidedly not sexy but it is wildly popular and it's going to give, you know, no one's going to be able to say Joe Biden's a partisan hack when Mitch McConnell is showing up on the shores of the Ohio river, uh, just across from, uh, Cincinnati, um, for that bridge, uh, project reopening that it's, it's going to box a lot of Republicans into show up for the photo op with Biden or reveal yourself to be a hack who took credit for this infrastructure bill, but won't be photographed with them. And it's going to for it, it done the right way. And I'm not saying the white house is going to do this, but done the right way. It can force Republicans to say nice things about Democrats that they actually got stuff done and they did it in a bipartisan way. And those are tangible items that people feel that is where people feel government. And that is where, you know, that, that may be what saves the Democrats' fragile majority in the House and Senate. It's a, it, the odds are long, but that is, that might be, you know, how Biden spends the last 
um, at least in the in the near term, uh, the last year having the trifecta of the House, the Senate, and the White House. As always, Phil, thank you. We hope that you have a great holiday and we'll be back in touch after the first of the year to see how this all plays out. I'll hold you to that, Tom. Have a great holiday. Today, we've been talking with longtime friend and time correspondent Phil Elliott about the gridlock in Washington and what's on the political horizon for 2022. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have a question or comment about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.